Hi, and welcome to The Eco Chamber, a podcast on all things environmental policy, brought to you by the investigative team of journalists at ENDS Report. I'm James Adjipong Parsons. In this week's episode, we'll be covering the environmental take-homes from the Conservative Party conference. We'll be looking at the delay to biodiversity net gain. And to finish off the big green news this week, we'll be discussing the latest State of Nature report. For our deep dive, we're going to be taking a look at the latest Scottish policy surrounding the environmental implications of liquefying the dead. Yep, you heard me. So let's enter... The Eco Chamber! It's all blue at the Conservative Party conference this week. Joining me live from the Tory conclave, I've got ENDS Reports editor Jamie Carpenter. Jamie, how is it going? Good, thanks. Yeah, it's been been a really, really busy couple of days, but um, plenty to uh, plenty to talk about. I've just been to a, a fringe session a few finished a few minutes ago about the the Whitehall Blob. Jacob Rees-Mogg was speaking to. So apparently there's a, a nefarious blob um, that's uh, stopping things from happening. So that's that's been interesting. I think it's the most packed fringe meeting I've been to so far. Um, so clearly there's uh, there's some appetite among Tory members for that sort of stuff. All right, so it's Tuesday afternoon at the time of this recording. What is the mood like with the Tory faithful? Um, it seems to have been kind of overshadowed by the high-speed two stuff, which at the time of we're talking still hasn't been, there's been no announcement on that yet. And also it seems that um, people like Chica's recent Morgan Liz Truss are... Um, they're 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 kind of um, drawing all the attention, um, so that, that that's a kind of interesting backdrop. I think the the environmental stuff's been been quite interesting. So we've had into quite a few fringe sessions at the um, a number of them run by the Conservative Environment Network, which have been pretty well attended. But but, but actually, the, the the Secretary of State Therese Coffey's speech yesterday was um, not well attended, really. I was queuing up outside, and the, the, the people outside were saying, "Oh, look, you might you might have um, difficulty getting in. You might just sit somewhere else and watch it." And then I got inside, and it emerged everything had um, was running late. So it was actually the the Chancellor's speech that was really um, busy. And then gradually, as minister after minister spoke, there were fewer and fewer people there. And by the time Therese Coffee started talking, it was um, there weren't that many people there at all. But at least there was a guy in front of me who was asleep during the previous speech, and he um, he woke up. No. So um, it wasn't all bad. What what were some of the highlights of Coffee's speech then? There were a couple of sound bites. So she 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 kind of talked about um, green zealots who think how farmers should stop rearing livestock and instead that we should eat fake meat. Um, she she talked about that. She also talked about um, bendy bananas as well. So um, she said that she's going to be dropping absurd regulations, including the one on bendy bananas. Um, she also sort of had a pop at, at right to roam. So so she she said that Labour's plans have a right to roam are really worrying for farmers. Um, frankly, the only right to roam on those fields should be their cattle, sheep and pigs. So in, in Therese Coffey's world, pigs should have more rights than people, I guess. So it, it all kind of got a fairly lukewarm reception. Where I was sitting, I could see the um, auto queue behind me and there, there, was, there was one bit where it had applause in big capital letters and... and there wasn't any applause forthcoming, no. and the, the person with the also queue just kind of scrolled on really quickly. Um, that that was that was Therese Coffey. Have there been any other highlights for you at the conference? 
yeah, I mean, I think I think an interesting thing was is around um, the transport secretary speech yesterday morning, um, Monday morning, where where he talked about um, his words not mine, sinister fifteen minute cities, and he's basically saying that the councils are almost using the, the this this what, what I thought was a fairly benign town planning concept to to restrict people's ability to go to the shops, um, and it's it's kind of it sounds a bit silly, but actually. Um, it's, it's a little bit worrying because th- there are kind of a lot of conspiracy theorists out there who, or, or some conspiracy theorists out there who, who, who kind of talk about 15 minute cities as being some kind of UN organized global plot or something. Um, and the kind of interesting thing I think with the environment stuff is that th- there's been a bit of discussion about whether what's going on is, is in terms of the, 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 the rollbacks that have been announced recently, is, is that about Rishi Sunak being someone who's a details man and, and looking at the details and deciding, having looked at the details, that he should go a little bit slower on these things? Or, or is it is it more around basically the, the, the Tories kind of seeing that there's some electoral capital in, in, in pushing back on these things and, and, and almost sort of playing into conspiracy theorist playbook and, and, and what's going on with that? And... Um, I think when when, you, when you've got Therese Coffey talking about green zealots and, and the transport secretary talking about fifteen minute cities, it seems more about the latter and less about this being a kind of a, a hard nosed pragmatic strategy by the prime minister. And before you go, Jamie, is there anything you've gleaned about neutral neutrality? What did Jacob Rees-Mogg have to say? Yeah, so um, I mean, on on Jacob Rees-Mogg, there was there was an interesting thing. I mean, he, he's I think I think some of it's fairly. Um, as to be expected, that, that um, for a lot of reasons he thinks civil servants are blocking blocking reform. Um, so he kind of specifically referred to like the Climate Change Act and saying, "Well, that's a way that, that civil servants can block things from happening." Um, the, the, the slightly more interesting thing in that fringe session was, um, for me anyway, was that Ranul Jayawardena was that who was the former environment secretary under under this trust he he talked a little bit about his time in defra and was was kind of um slightly critical of of i think the the how the 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 armlets armlets bodies in his 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 view were kind of too independent and um it was difficult to get things done and 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 the press office wouldn't kind of do what he wanted to do wouldn't wouldn't kind of um cooperate in that regard so that that was kind of interesting um on, I, I think Tosh is going to talk a bit more about neutrality, but on that there was there was some um, I, I'd say interesting comments on interested on on neutrality from the uh, from Trudy Harrison, who's um, environment minister. So she was she, she was basically saying that um, her, I just trying to read the quotes in my notes. She's saying, for me, the solution is finding the optimal use for the powerful substance that we call shit. Um, and she was kind of saying that, that um, talking about basically u- using using human excrement to power stuff, like for for, for grunty vehicles, we, we need an alternative to diesel. Um, we've got to get our shit sorted, <laughs> she said. So, um, yeah, so that, that fairly, <laughs> fairly um, um, interesting quotes. So that, that was the uh, highlight of, um, well, today's highlight for me, definitely. So I'll... Uh, so I transcribe those and we'll have a story on the website as soon as I can get it out there. Jamie, thank you so much for popping in. I will leave you to it. No problem. Great stuff. Right. So some interesting words there from Trudy Harrison. 
Some other anecdotal words from Therese Coffee, Shosha. You had the pleasure of being at the conference over the weekend, beginning of the week. Um, were there any pearls of wisdom the Environment Secretary shared with you? Yes, it was great to meet her in person, actually. Um, I then sort of spent the rest of the afternoon trying to to chase her down. And I did finally um, catch her at the National Oceanography Centre's talk, where she mentioned she finds it quite difficult to get across um, that when people are talking about the high E. coli levels downstream of wastewater works, we shouldn't actually be surprised by them, um, which I thought was quite an interesting point. She also said that while all the water gets treated at the sites, not everything gets disinfected, as to do so would require quite a lot of energy. And people forget our greatest ally for tackling bacteria is the sun. Therese Coffey loves the sun. Uh, and she loves the sea too? She does. She said that the sea was her best friend. Um, and you know what? I think she did make a very good impression on the panel in terms of her commitment to climate change um, and using the sea as a carbon sink. Um, so she said she was very pro seaweed farms. Name dropped when she said that um, she'd spoken to the Prince of Wales at the Earthshot Prize. Mm. Um, and he also loves seaweed. Um, and she said she was very pro the UK's international commitment to save 30% of the sea by 2030. Although I think the government are taking the line that this has been achieved, whereas campaigners would dispute whether those protected areas are actually being protected. And it wasn't just coffee you heard from. I understand you were listening to Rachel McLean, the Housing Secretary, Michael Gove at the conference. What were some of your take-homes with them? So the Michael Gove talk was really interesting. And that was one that was hosted by the think tank Centre for Policy Studies. And it was packed out. Like it was very hard um, to even get into the room. Um, but he says that he really wants to bring forward a new bill to scrap nutrient neutrality rules at the first available opportunity um, if he can get the prime minister on board. And going back, I suppose, these nutrient neutrality rules we've been talking about a lot recently on the podcast for long time listeners, um, but they require developers to make sure they're not increasing the nutrient loads in protected waterways. And the government did try and scrap them through the levelling up bill recently, but they were blocked by peers. So Gove described the nutrient neutrality rules as a moratorium on building houses um, and the protections that they provide are disproportionate. And interestingly, at a separate talk, I managed to ask Rachel McLean a question. She's the housing minister. And she, you know, had the same stance um, that these rules were disproportionate. Um, and I asked her to give more details about this. Yeah, and we've actually got a clip of that housing minister, Rachel McLean, responding to you over these issues of nitrate neutrality. Just take a listen here. We absolutely do plan to do it. We have already that legal framework already prepared. There, will, there is no degradation to environments that comes, let me be clear. Pollution does not come from new houses. New houses are built to very high standards. We have now left the EU. Uh, we voted to leave the EU. That means that we do not need to follow defective EU laws. And by the way, the EU laws that are, are the things that are sort of holding us up uh, are not doing anything to improve those protected sites that they purport to protect. Now, we all care about the waterways, of course we do, and about the environment. We absolutely uh, put that at the heart of our government programme. 
Uh, but these rules are something that is completely disproportionate to the actual impact. And when we uh, brought forward that legislation in the House of Lords, we also brought forward a very extensive <coughs> of environmental support uh, from farmers uh, to support building of wetlands so that we would, across the board, actually protect the environment and start to remediate those sites as well. And don't forget, we have already passed legislation to make sure that the water companies are much uh, better at upgrading their infrastructure uh, so that we can get that certainty for planning permission. So I do feel very strongly about this, and I'm afraid that we do need to fight that battle. I thought the language, I thought Rachel McLean's language was really interesting. I picked up, uh, we do not need to follow defective EU laws, defective. Uh, we, we need to fight, we do need to fight that battle. Very anti-EU. I mean, was that your take at the conference, uh, her, her pitch? Yeah, I would say so. I think it was a stance that I noticed a lot of um, the ministers taking throughout the conference, just sort of reiterating their position that Brexit was a good idea and that it wouldn't reduce environmental protections, but in fact strengthen them. Although I have to say how it will strengthen them is something that's not really been outlined. I mean, I did also, the part that I thought was quite interesting is she said that new houses don't cause pollution. Um, Because, you know, that is a difficult one because if new houses are built with considerations for the environment in mind, then you know, they might not contribute to pollution. But I actually spoke to the boss of Southern Water um, and he said that, you know, urban rainwater runoff is actually a huge problem that's at the root of this storm overflows problem um, because when we cover up grass with tarmac, it means that the rain, instead of being absorbed, is flowing into the sewage system. And then when the sewage system gets overwhelmed, the storm overflows release untreated sewage. So it all comes back to that, really. The impact of the nitrates policy is an unknown. We think that it's there's about 100,000 homes stuck in the planning system in England across 74 local authorities. Um, we have done a deep dive episode on that, episode 53 on those numbers, if listeners, you are keen to know where those statistics have come from. And about the Dutch nitrogen case, which sort of really galvanised Natural England into action. Um I do think it's very interesting, this sort of conjecture that the Conservatives have about we will not let the environment down, we will protect it more, in fact, having left the EU. And what is clearly an attempt to remove or amend the EU habitats regulations to get through the current nitrate logjam, was there a sense that they understood the policy at play? Or do you think they genuinely believe that they're going to make the environment a better place? Listening. I do think the government has come under a lot of pressure on the housing issue. Um, And what was interesting is on the panel that Rachel McLean was speaking, um, there was also the chief executive of Taylor Wimpy, which is the UK's largest house builder. And she was saying, you know, the amount of houses that we've built this year, sort of looking at projections as well, is far less than in 2019. And that was at the same time as McLean was saying, you know, we've boosted house building already. So there is a lot of pressure to get these new houses out there, not just for um, you know the people that need them, but also because it's a sector that inc- requires long-term planning in order to make investments and build those houses. So I think there's pressure to do something. And then the question is, what can they do? And I think that's why we've ended up at this result. And it's not just house builders that are in the firing line when it comes to water pollution. 
at the same time as the Conservative Party conference, uh, there was an enormous announcement um, by the water industry uh, and a £96 billion investment plan that they say will tackle pollution and water security. Um, I know you were spinning lots of plates this week. Can you just explain to us that plan, a little bit about that plan and kind of what this means for us? Of course. So on Monday at 12, um, water companies had this deadline to submit their business plans, well, draft business plans really, for the period that covers 2025 to 2030. And in that, they have to outline how they're going to make investments to improve their services really um, for customers, the environment, and you know to achieve these government goals, policies, and statutory targets. So it, it, they're very important plans. Um, and yes, as you mentioned, um, Water UK, which is the industry representative for the water companies, has said that this 96 billion figure is, you know, one of the highest commitments we've seen from water companies. Um, so those plans will be looked at by Offwatt. Um, Therese Coffey, the Environment Secretary, has said that she's hoping Offwatt will use its new powers to really um, get its teeth into water companies if it finds those business plans are not up to scratch. And the final iterations of that will be expected to be published, you know, ahead of the 2025 period. So we'll hopefully be looking at those more and, and bringing more insights on that. Thank you. On to our next story. Just when you think the PM has sucker punched the environmental policy wonks for the last time, he throws another right hook. On last week's podcast, we discussed the fallout of the PM's net zero rollbacks. This week, we're talking about the delay to biodiversity net gain a flagship policy that would make it mandatory for house builders in England to create a 10% uplift in the value of nature on or off site. So Shosha, what's the latest on biodiversity net gain? So the new deadline for the biodiversity net gain implementation uh, for large house builders has slipped from November to January, um, which is a six week delay. Okay. Do we know why there was a delay? So in order to actually formally enact these rules, ministers have to lay down a statutory instrument before Parliament, um, but they haven't done so yet. Um, further guidance, including on irreplaceable habitats and enforcement, is also um, not there yet. And dedicated planning practice guidance um, has also not been published. Mm. And I noticed that DEFRA has now confirmed that legislation to bring in those BNG rules are going to be laid before Parliament in November. And this, the rules on the small sites, that's still applicable from April next year. Um, and for anyone interested in those nationally significant infrastructure projects, we're looking at 2025 for mandatory net gain rollout. So what's still unclear about net gain then? So we still don't know much about the statutory biodiversity metric, um, which DEFRA has said is critical for calculating the correct um, BNG. The draft biodiversity gain plan template, which is supposed to help developers prepare for what they need to complete during this stage, um, hasn't, it isn't there yet. Um, we're also waiting on the habitat management and monitoring plan, as well as a package of biodiversity net gain guidance that will set out further advice. Okay, so it sounds like sort of DEFRA is giving themselves a break, a six week interlude to come up with some of this stuff. Um, what's DEFRA said about the delay? 
So Trudy Harrison, who's DEFRA's biodiversity minister, who we heard from earlier through Jamie. Talking um, shit. <laughs> talking about shit, said VNG will ensure new developments work for both wildlife and people. Uh, this is still in quotes. We will create nature-rich places while ensuring communities get the new homes and infrastructure that they need. And she said the updated timetable that it's setting out today will smooth the transition. Okay. Well, speaking of nature-rich places, we're on to our final news story and the ominous news that was contained in the State of Nature report. Now, for those who don't know, this is a joint piece of work which is looking at species decline across the UK, uh, compiled from a baseline from the 1970s by more than 60 conservation organisations, which include the likes of the RSPB, the BSBI, the Mammal Society, Bat Conservation Trust, UK Centre for Hydrology and more. And it wasn't a great read if you love nature, was it, Shosha? Can you give us some of those headline figures? I think, yes. For those who love nature, they would have been a bit shocked. <laughs> um, one in six species in the UK is at risk of extinction, as per the latest report. I think that really is the most striking headline. Um, and then out of the 10,000 species they assessed for extinction risk across the country, they found 2% have already become extinct since um, 1500s and a further 16% are now threatened with extinction. Um, and they, they've compiled that using um, the IUCN Red List. I've heard this report described as sort of a stagnation report, that one in six figure, you know, the same headline back in 2019. Are we doing as badly then? Um, well, if you look a little bit further back, 10 years ago, the figures um, showed that it was one in 10 species at risk of extinction. So you could say that the direction of travel is not great. And can you just give us a bit of a postcode breakdown of those statistics? In Northern Ireland, 12% of the 2,500 rough species assessed are threatened with disappearing from the country. Um, across the overseas territories and crown dependencies, 11% of 6,500 species assessed are threatened with global extinction. Across Great Britain, the report also outlined that around 25% of plants are at risk of extinction, 11.4% of fungi and lichens are at risk of extinction, 39.2% of vertebrates and 11.9% of invertebrates as well. And it's quite heady to listen to all those numbers. If you do want to get a full breakdown, do go onto the ENDS report website, read Shosh's article and you can go through by groupings, you know, amphibians, reptiles, birds, the mammals, the insects, and, and sort of really take stock of what's going on. And there were, these are very sad statistics. Were there any notes of optimism? Well, it did say that um, there's been good news for nutjack toads. Um, so over the past two decades, the populations have stabilised and even increased at some sites where conservation management has been well resourced. So that's good news. Um, the report also noted that in the Lyme Bay Marine Protected Area, wildlife has increased a lot since trawling was banned in 2008. Um, but yes, that and more at the end's report. Time now for our moment of the week. A chance to reflect on something fun, cool, weird, experimental that's going on in the UK or around the world. Shosha, what was your moment of the week? 
So on the 2nd of October, um, a newly created reef, which is about the size of a football pitch, became home to 10,000 European native oysters, which I thought was great. Um, and that you'd think would be, you know, somewhere perhaps more exciting than the UK. But no, it was in um, just off the northeast of England. That's brilliant. And why should we care about our native oyster populations? So oysters are actually really important for the ecosystem. Um, Matt Utterly, who's Restoration Project Manager at Blue Marine Foundation, said that they change and improve the environment around them. Um, They create structurally complex three-dimensional habitats which support an abundance of other marine life and is intrinsically linked with ecosystem biodiversity. So that is some really good news, particularly after we've been hearing about how many species are actually going extinct. Mm, no, beautiful. And that kind of those bivalves where they suck in a lot of those nutrients, excess nutrients we're talking about, sort of clean the water. All good stuff. My moment of the week was the sycamore gap tree felling. I don't think we can get away from talking about that this week. Um, this was the news that an iconic 300 year old sycamore tree was felled last week. Uh, It was voted English Tree of the Year in 2016, fun fact, Um, but failed end of October. Yeah, this is the tree that for those who watch Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, will see the the tree in between the gap in Hadrian's Wall. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it took Twitter by storm, didn't it? It did. Um, I think lots of people were rightly upset because that tree's been there for hundreds of years. So it is sad to lose a landmark like that. I liked Cy King, who's part of the Harry Bikers duo. He said on socials, the culprit had murdered a sentinel of time and elemental spirit of Northumberland. Now I get get it. I do get it. I don't want to get too nerdy about trees. Um, A lot of ecologists aren't particularly big fans of sycamore. Uh, They're not particularly... um, a fantastic ecological biodiverse tree, but they do provide structure. Foresters seem to like them as a hardwood. Um, There is, of course, the reality that they'll probably just grow new poles. So we might see, you know, we'll see a rebirth of this tree from the rootstock, as long as it's not grubbed out. Um, And a lot of comparisons were being made to, well, everyone's getting very upset with this one tree, but look at all the trees that have been taken down as a result of high-speed rail two. I don't know. It is sad. There are also lots of other sad tree fellings going on in this country. Um, We can hold both up at the same time, maybe. And at the moment, we know that Northumberland police have a live investigation. And right now we know that a man and a 16-year-old have been arrested and bailed in connection with the felling. Time for our deep dive as we turn our attention to green burials and the latest environmental policies being driven in Scotland, liquefying the dead. So if you're having your breakfast, lunch or dinner, I suggest you put your knives, forks and spoons down. It might get a little bit gruesome. To help me understand what's going on, I'm joined by the editor of ENDS Compliance, Alice Fillon. So Alice, let's get the basics in place. What's the name for liquefying a body? Okay, so there's a lot of different names for liquefying a body. And just to be clear, we're talking about the legal kind of process here. Right, yeah, not the bathtubs, not fight club. No, um... First rule of Fight Club, James, come on. Come on, don't talk about that. (laughs) Uh, So if you're going about doing this legally, it is aquamation or resumation, biocremation, green cremation or alkaline hydrolysis. 
So that's more technical names. So that gives you an idea straight away of the process, um, which is you put your remains into a cylinder and you add some sort of caustic base. So usually it'll be something like potassium hydroxide, so lye. Um, and then you will heat that at about 150 degrees to 200 degrees uh, for anything from three to 18 hours. You know your lie. Maybe. Other burials are available, um, but what are their environmental impacts? Can you just take me through some of what we know? Yeah, so obviously um, you've got incineration, which is... Uh, the one that most people in the UK choose, um, just under 80% of people. So 80% um, of people cremated? Yeah, 80% of people in the UK opt for that, okay. which, yeah, um, surprised me a little bit. But um, So that's the main one. Um, and then the classic burial. Um, so the classic burial takes about 8 to 12 years for the body to decompose. Um, it's expensive. Um, and obviously it's got an impact on the land just in terms of space, but there are also issues with um, risks to groundwater in terms of the embalming fluids that can leach into the ground, also just residues from the decomposition process. So, And I've, I've read an article recently about the um, heavy metals in fillings. Is yeah. another problem? Yeah, so um, metals generally, um, because obviously anything that's kind of already present in the body and fillings is a big one. Mercury um, is in some historic fillings um, and you don't really want too much mercury in groundwater. Uh, but you've also got just lots of chemical substances um, like residues from uh, medical treatment and things like pathogenic bacteria. I, I have seen some quite quirky videos of uh, mycelial suits being advertised on, a, on some TED Talks. Um, is that is that legitimate? Yeah, so that is that is an option. It's not an option in the UK at the moment, but uh, that is a kind of exciting new development in a sense where it is taking the same principles as burial um, in terms of just a natural way to let the body decompose in the soil usually um but usually what will happen is they'll uh it'll be yeah either placed in a mushroom suit or there's also things like natural organic reduction where you can um you just kind of help the body compost in a sense nice um which is it's legal in some states uh but it, it's not really happening in in the uk at the moment um and then, yeah, incineration is um, quite heavy in terms of energy consumption. Uh, so compared to that, when we look at aquamation, it's got a lot of similarities with incineration. It shares um, the space advantage. Um, you don't have a casket. Uh, there's no embalming needed. Um, it takes longer than incineration, um, but it needs less uh, less electricity Um it's about like six to seven times less energy intensive in a sense. Um, it's a lower temperature. Uh, it does use up some water. To, it takes about uh, 1,300 litres of water. Um, but then it leaves any plastic or it separates the plastic and metal. So if you've got any, you know, I don't know if you've got a, uh, a metal pin in your body or something like that that will be separated, it won't melt or anything like that, so it can be taken out so there's no toxic residue. Um, it doesn't go into toxic smoke either. 
And uh, I have to ask, at the end of this liquefying process, yeah, you left with like a goop. What's... Uh, well, you're left uh, in a sense. So you're left with uh, the bones, much in the same way as incineration. So that can then be put through a cremulator, and you end up with an ash exactly the same as what you would through incineration. And then the liquid is sort of a brown sludge, but that can just be put through a normal water treatment. Um, and it's sterile. There's no DNA or anything like that left. No way. And have there been examples of this used elsewhere? Yeah, sure. Um, it's legal in a number of states and it's it's used in, um, in the US in certain states. Um, there's installations in uh, provinces in Canada um, since 2012. Uh, there's also, it's also legal in Ireland. Uh, the Netherlands is considering it. Uh, I think it's legal in Mexico as well. Um, yeah, that's not an exhaustive list, but yeah, it's, uh, oh, South Africa as well. And now it might be coming to a town near Scotland. Uh, yeah, it might be coming to Scotland more generally. Um, basically, Scotland is having a suite of consultation um, as part of its sort of review of burial regulations. Um, it started the process in 2016 with the Burial and Cremation Scotland Act. Um, and now it's having a consultation on um, a number of aspects of burial and um human disposal uh, regulations. So there's one consultation on burial regulations and the management of burial grounds, which, uh, I, I, I'm sorry, I'm just going to go on a tangent here, but um, there's the the, um, the mention of, it's the management of burial grounds and the restoration of lairs. Excellent. Yeah. I want my lair restored. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I too want my lair restored. Um, there's one on funeral director licensing, uh, there's one on the inspection of the funeral sector in Scotland. Um, and the final one is on alkaline hydrolysis. Um, so this is all part of uh, a desire uh, that people have to increasingly have options that are more environmentally friendly. Um, so it's just a question of how do we regulate this? So in Scotland, what they're proposing is just to regulate it very similarly to incineration because the process is quite similar. Right. There's Are there any environmental permit implications here? Yeah, definitely. So um, the major environmental point is uh, you would need trade effluent uh, consents for the release of that residue liquid into either the sewers or the environment. Um, so again, that's kind of Scottish waters in Scotland and um, or... SIPA, um, if it's to the environment. So let me just get this straight. We're talking about then that brown sludge being yeah. allowed to re-enter our wastewater treatment. Yes. Okay. Some people might find that a difficult pill to swallow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I can understand that. Uh, and it's one of the reasons why uh, at some stage in England, uh, Seven Trent refused a trade effluent consent um, because there were plans to... Um, to start an installation for water cremation in England, in the Midlands. And in 2017, Seven Trent refused that consent on the basis that yeah, people might be a little bit, um, 
I don't want to say squeamish, but yeah, people might be a little bit troubled by that. Right. Uh, which is understandable. Nobody really wants to think of uh, their loved ones going back into our water system. But Or the sewage plant. Yeah, or the sewage plant. But um, it, it's not... It, that liquid is basically a sterile liquid. It's not... It, there is no risk to to people. Um it it would just go through the water treatment much as any other. So we were talking about Seven Trent then. Is this legal in England? Yeah, it is legal in England. Uh, the it would be regulated uh, through environmental permitting regulations. Um, so again, it's a question of having all the permissions. Okay, then I have to ask this: If you were going to have a burial, would a water cremation be your first first port of call? Uh, currently, maybe I guess um, you know I'm I'm holding out for my mushroom suit. Okay, listeners, if you have any thoughts, views, or opinions yourselves, do email us ecochamber at haymarket.com. On today's episode, I've gleaned that environmental zealots will need to eat their bendy bananas if the environment secretary has anything to do about it. The biodiversity net gain will go ahead, says the government, just not until next year. And I've also learned that the state of the UK's nature is nothing to write home about. And finally, aquamation, the liquefaction of the dead, may become the new cremation of Scotland. My thanks to Shosha Aidy, Jamie Carpenter and Alice Fillon for coming on to this week's episode of The Eco Chamber. We'd really love to hear from you listeners with all your thoughts, views and opinions. So do reach us by emailing ecochamber at haymarket.com or on socials using the hashtag ecochamber. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and maybe even share it with a friend. Until the next time, take care.